Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Now, today, my guest is Shauna Schifrin. Shauna is professor of philosophy and Pete Cameron, professor of law and social justice at UCLA. Her research spans the fields of moral, political, and legal philosophy, with special emphases on equality, autonomy, and the morality of promising. Her most recent book is titled Speech Matters on Lying, Morality, and the Law. It's published by Princeton University Press. And in that book, Shauna defends a novel conception of the importance of free speech in a free society. And she draws on connections between that importance and the general moral prohibition on lying. Hi, Shauna. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm great, Bob. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thanks for joining us on the Why We Argue podcast. Um, today, Shauna, there seems to be um, a lot of chatter uh, politically and uh, among the commentators and among citizens about free speech. Um, and some of this chatter concerns um, complaints about norms uh, that are so-called political correctness norms or you know, speech policing norms. Um, there's other uh, uh, debates about college organizations inviting controversial speakers to give lectures. And uh, recently, we've even heard some complaints about uh, graduates uh, uh, very visibly leaving uh, in the middle of a commencement speech being given by the um, vice president of the United States. Now, uh, it seems to me, at least, correct me if, if I'm wrong, or we, we can talk about this if, if you don't agree, that a lot of these debates over free speech are centrally disputes about what makes free speech valuable or what the value is of upholding free speech norms, why free speech matters for a democratic society. Now, you're an expert on this. Um, Maybe a place to begin is, can you tell us a little bit about your view about the value of free speech for a democracy? Sure. Um, so I think free speech is a human right that's central to individual flourishing and development, and it's a central component of democratic life. So if democratic law is, as I think it is, the, the method by which we generate and communicate our joint commitments to each other in a context of equality, then the ability and the opportunity for each of us to deliberate about ideas together, to formulate our opinions and decisions, to correct our opinions through joint interaction, and then to express them is an essential component of what democracy is. And each of us as individuals... Um, to become distinctive individuals, we have to be able to develop and formulate our thoughts through interaction with other people. And to be good moral agents, we have to be able to convey what we think to others and to have them hear us and respond back to us because we're the kinds of creatures who are dependent on each other, not just materially, but also intellectually. And so for free speech to operate well, both for it to serve its function for individuals as a human right, but also for democracy 
uh, a communicative enterprise to operate well, we have to have this ability and opportunity to voice what we think, to be heard, to listen to others, and to have an openness to revising what we think as we learn what others think and worry about and what matters to them. To cooperate together, we have to learn what's on each other's minds and to have a certain kind of stance. Uh, All of us to develop accurate thoughts, considered thoughts, we have to get feedback from other people, and that feedback has to be both critical, uh, aiming to get at the truth and to be correct, but it also has to be supportive. And when I say it has to be supportive, I don't mean that other people have to support the content of what you say, but I think we have to try to be supportive in the sense that recognizing that sometimes what people say is their first draft of their thoughts, and first drafts are often highly flawed, but sincere efforts to understand. Uh, And people don't get it right on their first try. They need assistance and feedback and time. Right. So maybe um, maybe draw uh, help us sort of um, uh, see what's distinct about this view, because I think it is distinct. So your view incorporates into the concept of the value of free speech something about the development or the, the, the we might say the the cognitive or epistemological development of both speakers and hearers right that free speech or norms of free speech are an important component of the development of not only our thoughts but our ability to understand others which is an ability that's necessary for going to cooperate with them as fellow citizens is that right That's absolutely right. Um, I think we are what's called epistemically dependent on each other. That means we need to get knowledge from other people uh, in in order to have a grasp over our complex environment. None of us can take it all in just through our own perceptions. Uh, We need information from other people, and we also need their feedback. Uh, In order to fully understand what I think, I I often have to express it to someone else and see how they hear it uh, and have them help me understand it and its flaws. Um, I think that's true for all people. Uh, And to be a good moral agent and understand what morality requires, I have to know what matters to you. And that's going to require hearing what you think and feel uh, and judge Right. So would you say then, just picking up on that on that point, would you say then that sort of a, a, a social environment that practices and recognizes the sort of the, the norm, free speech norms is uh, a contributing component? Maybe it's even necessary for individuals' moral development? I do think that um, if we don't have a free speech environment, Uh, in which people can't voice what's on their minds, what problems they have, what arguments they're thinking about, what they're suffering, what they celebrate, uh, then I won't be able to understand other people and their needs. And so that's one way in which uh, my ability to be a moral agent will be stymied. And in order to understand whether people act well, I think you have to know what their motives are. And we come to understand each other's motives and their reasons through discursive communication by talking to each other. Right. Um, so 
Let me just sort of give voice to uh, maybe a, a point of concern that someone might raise uh, with with the kind of, of, of view that, that 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 you've you've raised. Um, are there certain kinds of views the 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 hearing of which can constitute a harm to the hearer? Of course, there are. And what, what? Okay, great. So, what, what's your view about um, uh, about controversial speaking that that might arguably at least rise to the level of that kind of harm? Well, it's a complicated topic. I certainly think there are lots of things that people say that hurt and harm others. And that one thing every speaker should consider quite carefully is whether they can convey and express their thoughts in ways that are sensitive and respectful to the people who will hear them. And so one obligation speakers have is to be respectful and thoughtful about the needs uh, and sensitivities of their listeners. On the other hand, in order for people to come to understand sometimes why what they say is hurtful, they have to say it and get feedback. Uh, They have to be sincere about what's on their minds and listen to people um, and their reactions in and their reasons in order to come to a better understanding of the topic that's motivating them to say the ignorant or biased thing that they say. So while I believe in strong moral norms on speakers to think very carefully about what they say and whether they can put what they're thinking in a respectful way, I also think that sometimes people need to say the ignorant thing in order to learn from others. Right. Wonderful. Um, does the, the view is also, I guess, um, contrasted. I mean, there are other maybe um, uh, in the vernacular, in the political vernacular, at least free speech often gets um, free speech norms often get appealed to as if they don't have responsibilities of the kind that you've just been talking about attached to them, that um, to invoke a, a norm of free speech is to um, uh Often, at least to my ear, uh, a claim uh, on the behalf when a speaker invokes a free speech norm, it's a claim that says that nobody is um, entitled to criticize what has been said. I, I hear that, too. And I think it's kind of antithetical to the argument I've been giving for freedom of speech, um, which is that part of its point is to have an environment in which we receive critical feedback. So I think it's a responsibility of speakers uh especially when they speak about issues that could hurt people to be thoughtful about what they say. But I also think it's a responsibility of listeners to be critical in response uh, so that it can be a a mutual environment uh, of learning and improvement. Uh, And and I also think listeners have to try to be sensitive to the the fact that sincere speakers may make errors uh, when they speak. And that the function of listeners uh, is to be actively engaged, to try to understand the other person, to give critical feedback where warranted, uh, and to make room for the possibility of mutual growth. Great. So now let's connect up, uh, if we can, um, uh, if, if that is it. I know, I know you can. If, if, let me see if I can. Um, let me try to sort of – you see a, a, a rather tight connection between um, – Free speech norms and other kinds of, of of sort of moral prohibitions on deception, on lying, um, on um, 
the, the ways in which we can we can you know uh, perform speech acts that um, uh, deceive or mislead. Um, can can you make that connection a little bit more explicit? I mean, it seems to me that if, if at least if, as a first pass, that the if the free speech norms really are very tightly as you think uh, they are tied to certain cognitive aims, certain epistemic goods that um, are achievable only collectively, only if we engage in certain ways and uphold a certain kind of uh, environment, uh, a communicative environment, that it looks like lies. Um, speech that is intended to deceive or speech that uh, is designed to deceive, perhaps, they look problematic from the point of view of free speech on your view. Would that be right? I entirely agree. So the way I've been discussing freedom of speech, it kind of gets its point from the fact that we don't have access to each other's minds, uh, but we need to have access to each other's actual mental content in order to grow as people, to, to grow as moral agents, to, f- to grow as thinkers, to figure out what I think, to get reactions and responses from other people. Uh, but all of that depends on the idea that when I speak, I'm saying what I sincerely think. And so, too, if what we're doing in a democratic environment is attempting to understand each other as a community and even to make compromises where necessary, my willingness to compromise really depends on the idea that you're telling me sincerely something that's crucial to you, that I should give way to. But if you're bluffing then that's going to understandably tax my willingness to compromise and that willingness will wither because all of these values and functions of speech really depend upon the idea that I'm offering you actually what I'm thinking, that when I say something matters to me, I'm not bluffing, but it's true when I say I think these facts are accurate, they're my best representation of what's the case. Right. So what do you make then of... Uh, well, let, let me let me put it this way. It, it seems to me that uh, perhaps, uh, especially since this most recent presidential campaign, but uh, certainly not. Uh, I don't want to deny that before then. It seems to me that a certain kind of political cynicism has become uh, ascendant. Maybe we'll put it where uh, we've we've become acclimatized to the view that politicians lie. And that it's part of what politics is in a democratic society for politicians, including candidates for the highest offices, including uh, representatives uh, and, and uh, including actual office holders to engage in, in deceptions and to, to flat out lie. That would it seems to me, at least again, it was like this would be particularly troubling from your point of view. It is. So it has been become common but I don't think that's an argument for it. Our our politics aren't working. And the climate of insincerity, I think, is partly to blame. So as I've been arguing, um, lies about important forms of information will disrupt networks of trust. Uh, We depend upon sincerity to decide what to engage our joint conversation and mutual attention about. Sincerity is the linchpin of our willingness to compromise. And public officials are supposed to be our voice. And they're also supposed to be a source of important information that allows us as democratic citizens to play our role in creating a democratic culture that expresses our commitments. And when our public officials don't, 
satisfy that role. They undermine our ability to function as democratic citizens. I take it extremely seriously. The perception that politicians lie creates a climate of mutual suspicion and uncertainty. It encourages encourages us to engage in more forms of isolation and polarization within subgroups. Uh, and I think it distracts from the real issues. So the current president's reputation is certainly suffering from all of the controversy about his accuracy and sincerity, but he's also dominating the news and the scandals distract us from actually thinking about the policies that, that he and his, um, cabinet and officials are promoting. Uh, and it diverts energy from his critics and his observers who might otherwise spend their energy developing alternative policies that we could all deliberate about together. Right. That is, that, that's, Shana, that strikes me as such a, an important point that um, once you say it, it seems so, um, so clear to me, but it doesn't, um, doesn't get the play. And maybe that's part of the symptom of the problem that, you know, when you turn on the news in the evening, uh, if you watch the cable news in the evening, or even if you look on the, the sort of newspapers, so much of the news day to day is focused on exposing dishonesty. And that itself is not criticizable. I mean, dishonesty should be exposed, especially dishonesty that's provable and, and, and that's being perpetrated at the highest levels of government. But there's an opportunity cost, right? That all the journalists who are tracking down, doing all the fact checking are their effort, uh, the, the lines on, in the newspaper, the, the moments of airtime are being devoted to debunking and fact checking uh, while the actual business of government, including the business of thinking and talking and deliberating and arguing about actual policy, um, all of that gets pushed to the side because the citizens and the media are perhaps with some claim to be doing a responsible job tracking down facts so that lies can be exposed. It seems like it's got a tremendous cost. I agree. I mean, it is difficult, as you say, to criticize the media for it because I think it, it shows that we can't actually absorb dishonesty as normal. Right. And the, one of the reasons we can't is because it, honesty is part of the threshold of cooperation. Right, right. And, but at the same time, as citizens, we have to make sure that our interest in uncovering dishonesty does not serve as a substitute for also watching what's actually happening on the ground with real policies, that we shouldn't allow it to serve as a screen that prevents us from also attempting to investigate and keep watch right. over the other policies being pursued in our name. Yeah, I, 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 a deeply cynical thought just occurred to me <laughs> that maybe sort of a barrage of easily detectable lying or lies is a strategic maybe that's just maybe that's a, a one kind of real politics strategy that <laughs> you've got a a bunch of democratic institutions media citizens uh, uh fact checking institutions sort of feeding them a, a a pretty steady stream of of lies that are, are can be detected and debunked is just a way of getting them stuck in the mud in a way. That would, that, be thought, a that, that would be terrible. <laughs> well, that thought has occurred to me. 
as well. I think perhaps one of the reasons we're vulnerable to that strategy, if it is a strategy, um, is that more of our media sources are dependent on press secretaries and press releases. And so they really depend on what other people say to them. Right. We've lost a lot of kind of the backbone of investigative reporting. And so we're more dependent in some ways on what officials say than perhaps we were at a time in which there were more newspapers that were thriving. Right, right. Um, uh, but that's but, a speculation, and perhaps you should talk to a journalism <laughs> professor about that. Well, you know, I spoke to Eric Alterman uh, about this very issue <laughs> uh, not too long ago, and uh, that that was one of his messages on, on, on the podcast episode uh, he and I did together, which was <laughs> – We've got to start supporting independent journalism. You've got to start paying for news. Uh, the idea that news comes for free is profoundly dangerous for democratic politics, that uh, if you're not willing to pay for news, you're not going to be able to get news for much longer. But maybe for my own psychological well-being, uh, let's move away from, from that cynical thought. Um, given what we said, do, do you have any advice that you might uh, want to offer uh, or could offer to democratic citizens who – uh, are interested in uh, sort of helping to realize the, the model of free, the value of free speech that you just uh, outlined? Sure. Well, let me start. I'll, I'll endorse the suggestion you just mentioned from Eric Alterman that we do more to uh, those who can afford it should pay to subscribe to newspapers and radio and other media sources that engage in original investigative journalism, okay. including those that um, really attend to local and state issues. And that connects to a second uh, idea, um, which is uh, to encourage people to vote <laughs> um, and to vote in every election, um, to taking the time to learn about local issues and local elections and asking friends for their thoughts about them is one way to stimulate new kinds of political conversations and be democratically engaged. Uh, and even if... Uh, your friends don't know the local issues or the local candidates um, or don't know more than you, just the inquiry may inspire their interest and an effort to find out more. So that's kind of a second piece of advice. Um, a third is uh, that maybe we can all try to experiment with new forms of engagement, like going out of our way to be kind to strangers and have short conversations with them, uh, spending less time bemoaning the general state of the union, but talking about specific issues and concerns. Uh, I think we often make more progress with people who may have different opinions than we do by talking about quite specific issues to see where our points of disagreement are. And one suggestion I have is that one attitude to take or a stance to take in such conversations is to imagine that the point of the conversation is not to resolve the issue in one setting uh, or to persuade your interlocutor, but more to listen and to convey your thoughts and worries with a mutual openness to being influenced by the interaction and to think more. Um, I think that deliberation and progress occur over time. 
And that one thing that sometimes goes wrong in political conversations, especially those that are televised, is that there's this kind of model that will fully resolve it in a single setting. And I think that model and those expectations are bound to be unsatisfying and more likely to generate conflict and polarization because people dig in. But if instead you approach conversations by thinking that you're trying to make someone think about something more and that it'll be successful if you were heard and you heard them, and you think more later, uh, that, that people might make a little more progress. Well, Shauna, you've been very generous with your time, and uh, I think that uh, th- th- those three points, particularly the, the, uh, the last one, um, uh, are, these are very good points of advice uh, uh, for citizens. I, you know, we are, it strikes me, sort of living in a democratic context where not only I mean, where we're being, there's kind of rewards for, (laughs) there's social rewards for snap judgments and there are inducements to thinking that everything is easy and obvious and there's not a whole lot of uh, intellectual ground to traverse. And uh, you've uh, given a good reason for thinking that some of those um, social inducements actually contrary uh, not only to democracy, but maybe even contrary to even knowing our own thoughts. So that's very helpful. You know, I think one of the things about studying philosophy is it's so hard um, (laughs) (laughs) that one of the (laughs) things you learn early is that it's okay to say, I don't know, or I'm not sure yet. Well, Um, I need to think more. And I think getting the confidence to feel you can say that to people actually facilitates understanding between people. Well, that seems to me right. I in a, a previous uh, episode of this podcast mentioned to Michael Lynch, uh, the, one of the early guests in the podcast, that in the time leading up to the election, I, I tried doing that. Just to, you know, the people at the Starbucks that I go to every morning when when you know I spend you know ten minutes drinking a cup of coffee before I come to campus, people you know strangers would sort of you know say, oh you know what do you think about and you know they would name you know the email scandal or you know whatever the hacking. And when I just just to see what would happen, just say, you know, I haven't made my mind up about that yet. Overwhelmingly, the assumption was that I was not informed about what had happened, Mm. which is a which is a strange inference to draw, because often it seems to me that um, maybe this is just one of the things that happens when you study philosophy, that, you know, the more you know about something, the less clear it is what you should think about it. Right? I mean, we discover this all the time uh, as academics. But. Uh, the idea that in politics, once you know the facts, then your judgment or your attitude or your disposition or your reaction to the facts is sort of something that just that just happens automatically. I guess I hadn't realized how deeply ingrained th- that might be. It well, maybe the thing. Troubling. I'm sorry. What? Very tro- I just said yeah. it seems very troubling, right? Yeah. Maybe the thing to do is to say, these are my thoughts based on what I know, but I'd love to think more. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Just to think a little bit about the theme of this series, humility and conviction. I'm not arguing that one should give up one's convictions uh, or hide them. I think it's your duty to share them, uh, but to share them with a posture of openness uh, to learning from an interaction with others. Well, that is as good a point to wrap up uh, as as one could imagine, I think. Uh, Shauna, thank you so much for your time, and uh, thank you for appearing on the podcast. 
Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's wonderful to get to think with you about this stuff. Well, wonderful. And, and thank you, listeners, for checking out the Why We Argue podcast, which, again, is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on both Twitter and Facebook at, uh, at Public Humility. And uh, that is one word, Public Humility. Thanks, and bye for now. Thank you.